So this is uh, part three this morning. For those of you who've been keeping track, we are as a church in this year where as a theme we do feel that there is more, that God is calling us to more. He's calling us to press in to who he is, what that means for us, for the people, for the spaces that we're in. This is part three of our opening series uh, that we're doing as part of that. And you know, it's kind of appropriate that I am speaking to you this week in, whether you like it or not, this has been a kind of momentous week for this country, politically, yeah, yeah. But it is appropriate that I want to talk to you this morning about what do you do when a story doesn't go the way that you hoped it would? Okay, no political points there, but you know, there's two sides to this. Some people will have rejoiced this week. Some people will really have struggled with what happened. So what do you do? And I want to specifically ask you guys a question this morning, which is this. What's your story? So as I kick off this morning, I wonder what's going on in your life? What's the story of your life this morning? And more to the point, what's the story that you wanted to tell over your life? Because we all have a story, don't we? We all have something that we hoped would be the plan, that we hoped would be the journey that we would take. We all have a way that we expected life to go. And, and I don't know about you, but mine hasn't exactly followed the path that I expected it to. Anyone else? Life throws things at you that we don't expect. You know, this week, this month, this year, because we're just a month in, I have spoken to so many people already for whom the major challenge is that their story has gone off what they expected. Something has happened in their story. Something has intruded in their story that they never expected to be part of it. What do you do when that's the case? What do you do when there's something there that doesn't fit with what you expected, with what you hope for, what you dream for, for yourself or your family, for the people you care about? What do you do when it doesn't fit with what you feel like should be God's plan? It doesn't feel like what good should be speaking over you. What do you do when you've prayed for that for flipping ages and it's still not feeling right? What do you do? I want to talk about that this morning. And this is part of our series on wonder. And what we're doing in this series is we're looking at some of the names that are used for God throughout the Bible. The names that tell us something about the essence of God, the character of God, so that we can learn more about this amazing God that we worship and what that means for our life. And, and the last one, it was a couple of weeks ago, Matt looked at the, the God who is I am. This name, this slightly weird name that's a bit hard to get our heads around, but where God just says, this is just who I am. This is the essence of the nature of who I am. This God is, who is securely and reliably and consistently is certain things. And we're going to look this morning at one of the key things that God just is. It's consistently part of him. And to do that, we're going to look at the life and story of a guy called Abraham, who is one of the key characters from the Old Testament. You will probably have come across Abraham, even if you just heard about him in school. We're going to go through his story this morning. And Abraham's story is one that is full of these inconvenient truths. 
It's full of these moments when life doesn't seem to be going the way that perhaps it should, where reality seems to challenge a story that God is speaking over him. And I'm going to take you through Abraham's journey. Now, you'll see throughout on the screen, I'm going to put up some of the references, the passages, so you can follow along if you've got a Bible with you or if you're on your phone, or you can just note down the references to read them later. I won't always read everything exactly that's on the screen, but you'll see the references so you can follow the story where it came from. And we're in Genesis, so it's the first book of the Bible. We're towards the end of Genesis, but we're still in that very, very first book. So this is early on in the history of God's story, of the story of God's people. And Abraham is one of the, the, he's the first key player or one of the first key players in that history. And we start out in Genesis 11. Now, slightly confusingly, Abraham is actually called Abram here. We will, his, his name will catch up with us in a little bit, so bear with me. But he starts out um, called Abram. And in Genesis 11, which is where we first meet him, he is 75 years old. So a real youngster, obviously. Some of you agree with that, yeah? Midlife, yeah? Yeah, I think, yeah, basically midlife. Do you, does anybody else find as you get older, your idea of where midlife is just also gets old? Yeah, good, just checking that. So Abraham is midlife at 75. Actually, in Old Testament terms, that kind of was because they live, got to live a bit longer. And he's doing very nicely. He's got family, he's got land, he's got people. But what we see in Genesis 11 is that God calls him out of that comfortable success story, and he calls him into something really unexpected. He starts to speak a new story over Abraham, or Abraham as is then. And he says he's going to bless him. He's going to make him great. But he says this unexpected thing. He says that he's going to bless people through him, that Abraham's descendants are going to become this great nation. And he says that everyone on earth is going to be blessed because of this one man. It's a big story. So he calls Abraham and says, right, leave everything because I'm changing the story that you understood to be your story. Something new is going to happen, something significant. Wow, this is kind of a big moment. And so Abraham does do that. He leaves everything and he heads off to, uh, to Canaan, in fact, and to a new land, a new life and a new story. And we see in Genesis 13, when he gets there, that God again speaks this story over him, this promise. And and he's more specific. He says, look around you to the north, south, east and west, 360 degrees. Everywhere you can see, I will give you and your family all this land. And then he makes this promise again about descendants. He says, Abraham, I will give you more descendants than there are specks of dust on the earth. And someday it will be easier to count the specks of dust than to count your descendants. Wow, that, that is a lot of descendants. I have two children, that's plenty for me. But Abraham, it's like the, more than you can see specks of dust around you. Again, this is this amazing story that God is speaking over Abraham. But there's a small problem in this story. I don't know if any of you guys have ever felt, have you heard of imposter syndrome, you know, where you just think, well, I, I don't match up to this thing that people seem to expect of me, this thing that's being spoken over me. I, I don't know if Abraham had this, but there is definitely an awkward problem here alongside this story where he's going to have more descendants than there are specks of dust. And you can see it in Genesis 15. This is Abraham talking to God. He says, Lord all-powerful, you have given me everything I could ask for except... Children. 
He's childless. He has no children. In fact, we learn right back at the beginning of Abraham's story that his wife had always been unable to have children. When he starts out at 75, they've not been able to have children. 75 years, this has not happened for them. They've not been able to have children. So perhaps for him more than anyone else, this was an unexpected story. Because if you were going to grab someone and predict that their descendants would become more numerous than specks of dust, you'd probably go for someone who had at least one child. I'm just guessing. And Abraham is raising here with God this small issue. He says, look, when I die, Eliezer, whoever this is, is, is going to get all that I own. The only person he's got to pass things on to him is someone who's not even biologically related to him. It's a servant of his who's going to inherit everything. And so what we see here is Abraham expressing something that we all experience all the time if we're honest. And it's when there's just a mismatch between the story that we had hoped for, the story that maybe we felt God was speaking, and reality. Have you ever felt that? You ever looked at your situation and just thought, yeah, this is not really what I hoped. I'd hoped that by now I would be here, but actually I'm here. You ever looked at yourself and just thought, I, I'm, just, I'm not the right person to do this. I'd hoped I would be a much more impressive version of myself by now, but, but I'm actually not. It's like my daughter says, says to me, said to me the other day, she's like, Mommy, you are basically winging it all the time. I'm like, yeah, I am basically in parenthood. That is what I'm doing. We have hopes for ourselves that we would be better, wiser, different versions of ourselves than what we are. And, and psychologists call this clash, this mismatch, dissonance. It's when there's the, the version of what we had hoped for, the version we had in our minds, what we believe for, what we dream for, doesn't seem to match reality. There, there's a clash. And um, dissonance, it's, it's a difficult thing. It's a phenomenon in psychology that we recognize causes a lot of challenge for us as human beings because we do carry around with us in our heads representations of what we, what we hope for, the way that we expect things to go. And so often it's just not the same as the way that they actually turn out. And dissonance challenges us. It triggers a lot of negative emotion. It causes a lot of stress and anxiety because your brain alerts you to that mismatch. It's like literally, hey, there, there might be a problem here. This is not the way that you thought this was going to turn out. This, this could be something you need to worry about. The um, original psychologist who talked about this is a guy called Leon Festinger, and he said, when dissonance is present, people will actively avoid situations and information which would be likely to increase that dissonance. We, we try everything we can to, get a, to avoid the reality of recognizing that actually what we hope for and what we dream for isn't always the way that things seem to turn out because that's awkward. We struggle with that. And dissonance is an interesting challenge to us in faith terms. We worship this amazing God, this all-powerful God. We, we know that God is goodness and light and love and hope and all of these things, but so often real life, our real world, doesn't seem like it's full of those things. How do you manage those two things? People say to you, how can you follow good when there's so much evil in the world? How can you believe in God when there's disasters? How do you hold that dissonance? whether it's just looking out into the world or much, much more when it's in your own life, when you have prayed and prayed and prayed for something, for someone you love, and it just hasn't happened. 
where things are not the way that you hoped they would be. Christopher Hitchens, who is a, a, a famous guy for speaking out against faith, says the only position that he could think of that doesn't cause dissonance is atheism. The only thing, he, the only explanation he can think of that doesn't cause this problem is just to say that there is no God. Is, is that really our only solution? How do we hold this stuff as people of faith? And that's the situation that Abraham is in. He's got this massive dissonance because God is speaking this story over him. He's holding, if you like, in his head the responsibility of this story, this prediction that God is making that he's going to do something amazing. But the reality doesn't feel even close to that right now. And what we see as Abraham expresses that concern, that anxiety, that worry to God is that, that, that God doesn't seem flustered by this at all. In fact, his response in Genesis 15 to Abraham is just to repeat the promise. He says, you will have a son of your own and everything you have will be his. It's not going to your servant. Don't worry. It's all fine. And he takes him outside and again he repeats this story that he's speaking. This bigger God vision that he has for what's going to happen with this man's life. He says, look up at the stars. You're going to have more descendants than there are stars in the sky. He's like, don't worry that your reality doesn't fit. I promise you this is going to happen. But the trouble is... We would love a story where actually, woohoo, the next thing that happens is it's all solved. But actually in Abraham's story, the dissonance just continues. By the time we get to Genesis 16, if you read this, he's now 86 years old. That's over a decade since God started to speak this over him. And he still has no children. I don't know about you, but I would be thinking by now God might have figured this out. Do you ever look at your situation and think, I don't really want to criticize you, God, but I would have thought by now you'd have done something. Anybody else ever feel like that? It's like, if I were God, which, by the way, is a very risky start to a sentence, but I would have done something by now. Over 10 years and still nothing has changed. By Genesis 17, he's 99 years old. That's two decades. 24 years have gone by. He still has no child. And what we see in Genesis 17 is, again, God repeats this flipping promise. He says, I promise that you will be the father of many nations. And this is the moment when he actually goes even one step further and he changes Abraham's name. He calls him Abraham. He says, I'm going to call, change your name from Abraham to Abraham. Abraham in Hebrew sounds like the word for, it means the, the word for father of nations. So literally, he's changed this guy's name to reflect the promise that's going to be over him. We heard when we started this series that names in that culture were hugely significant. They spoke of your identity, everything that you were, everything that you brought. So Abraham is now literally carrying in his name God's promise, God's story over him which doesn't match at all with his reality. No pressure. He's going to become the father of nations, but he still has no children. There's no way it could come true. How is this going to happen? And we see at this time that Abraham is actually starting to really struggle with this. This dissonance that he's carrying is causing problems. Here's the first clue. It's actually one chapter back in Genesis 16. And, and he and his wife basically come up with a plan because they're like, seriously, God has lost the plot. This is not happening. Maybe there's another solution. And so what happens is that Abraham takes as, as, his, as another wife, because this was in the days when people had more than one wife. It wasn't unusual in this um, culture to do that. He takes as his wife his slave, and he has a child through her. 
He has a child who's a boy called Ishmael. And basically, he's saying, well, maybe, maybe this is the way that this could happen. How can I possibly fix this problem where God's story doesn't match my story? Maybe I can make it happen. Because we like to be in control, don't we? We like to be the people who somehow pull this off. So he comes up. And Abraham literally pleads with God as time goes on to let this be the solution. So in Genesis 17, and we can see now he's really starting to struggle, he bows with his face to the ground and says, I'm almost 100 years old now. He's like, seriously, that ship has sailed. How can I become a father? Sarah is 90. How can she have a child? So he starts laughing. I do not think this is a happy laugh. Have you ever had that laugh or cry moment? I think he's just, he's beyond himself. And he says to God, why not? Why not just let Ishmael inherit? Why not solve it? This is such an obvious problem. Why not solve it this way? But God says, no, you and Sarah are going to have a son and it's going to be through him. He's going to be called Isaac. It's through him I'm going to make this promise. And in fact, it's Genesis 21 when uh, we finally hear the good news. Abraham is 100 years old by now. So this is 25 years of him carrying this dissonance. And Isaac is born. Yes, hooray. And Sarah also laughs. I think hopefully by now this is a happy laugh. She says, everyone will laugh with me. Who would have dared to say that someday I would have a child? But in his old age, I've given Abraham a son. The story is back on track. Yes, everybody is so relieved until in Genesis 22, something happens that would have been therefore a huge surprise. And this is the key bit of the story that I want to tell you about today. And it says, some years later, God decides to test Abraham. And he says to him, get Isaac, your only son, the one you love, take him and, and I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to kill your son and give him as a sacrifice to me. Now, let me give you some context here. Child sacrifice was not as unusual as it would be now. I say unusual. It's not just unusual now. It's, you probably shouldn't. Just don't even go there. In those days, though, people were terrified of the gods, and they did sacrifice all sorts of things to them. And they sacrificed the things that were most dear because they're trying to win the approval of the gods. And people did sacrifice children to the gods in those days. So in some ways, it wouldn't have been a huge surprise. But this God didn't ask that of people. And this child, this was the only son, the promised child. I feel like God really rubs it in. He doesn't just say, take Isaac and sacrifice him. He's like, your only son who you dearly love. It's like, yeah, thank you. I knew that already. But he really makes the point clear. And, and again, what we have here is this dissonance. How can this fit? How can this be God's story? How can this be part of what he's doing? Do you ever have moments like this? You thought you were on track and something happens and you're just like, how? How can this be part of your plan? How can you have got me to here and then this happens? How can you have taken this away from me? How can you ask me to sacrifice this? How can you ask me to give this up? How can this be part of the story of what you're doing in my life? This is Abraham's moment. It doesn't make sense. And in a way, what Abraham does next, therefore, makes even less sense. Genesis 22, he just goes with it. There's no account of Abraham arguing, debating, struggling in any way. No sign of what he struggled with before. He gets up early the next morning. He gets some wood for the fire. He saddles up his donkey, grabs some servants and his son, and off they go. And they journey for three days to this place that God has called them to. 
And, and it's only here that Isaac seems to notice something is missing. They're literally about to go off and sacrifice. And Isaac's like, uh, hang on. We've got coals and we've got wood, but, but where's the lamb? Where's the animal? In those times, people sacrificed animals to God. And Isaac's like, we haven't brought one. Duh, we forgot something. And Abraham just says, God will provide. This is the first use of this, what will become a name that he gives to God. And he's going to name the place where all of this happened with this name, God will provide. And and actually, God does provide, but it goes right down to the wire. If you keep reading in Genesis 22, you see that they get to this place. Abraham builds the altar. He puts the wood on. And and all this time, you must be thinking, seriously, are you going to step in soon? Because this is getting really close. But but nothing happens. So he, he he ties up his son. He puts him on the wood. He's even got the knife in his hand. It's this massive cliffhanger moment. It's a Netflix moment. You know, it's like you've got to watch the next episode and you're supposed to be going to bed, but you know you're definitely going to stay up to see what happens next. Because God's angel suddenly shouts, no, Abraham, Abraham, don't hurt him. Now I know that you truly obey God because you were willing to offer him your only son. And Abraham looks up and he sees a ram caught in a bush and he sacrifices that instead. And this is when he names that place, the Lord will provide. Now, this is a story that you will probably have heard lots of people talk on before. You will have heard lots of debate. You may have loads of questions about this story. I want to answer the two biggest questions that I think there are about this story. And they're two big whys. And the first why is why on earth was Abraham so willing to do this? Why didn't he argue? Or at least question God or or something. Seriously, was he willing to go ahead? Some of you may be outraged. Like This is just horrendous that he was prepared to sacrifice his son. He had the knife in his hand. What kind of father would do that? And what we have to remember in this is that Abraham is the guy who has this backstory. He has experienced so much. He's learned so much about God through what he's already been through in these hundred years of his life. What has he learned? And Abraham's someone who comes up a couple of times in the New Testament because he's such a key character. And there's, there's a couple of references in the New Testament writings that I want to share with you which talk about Abraham. And the first one talks about what did he learn through that phase of his life when he was waiting for his son Those 25 years, quarter of a century, where nothing was happening, and he was holding this promise and waiting for a son. And this is from Abraham, uh, from Romans 4, verse 18. So it's a letter written in the New Testament. And it says this I love this verse. It says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. So what did Abraham learn through that? He learned something really key. He learned that in God's world, this dissonance between reality and the story God is speaking isn't necessarily as big a problem as it might seem. It may look like God doesn't know what he's doing, but he's got it figured out. It is not a bad sign. It is not a sign that God isn't coming through. It isn't a sign that hope is lost or that God's forgotten you, or that he's missed something, or any of the things we can be anxious about. Abraham has learned that in God's world, you can hope even when there is no hope. That when human wisdom, human vision seems to offer nothing, 
God isn't finished yet. That's what Abraham has learned. And, it, and he uses this name for God in this story, God the provider. It's Jehovah the I am that Matt spoke about a couple of weeks ago. I am the provider. It's the, talking about the essence of God is that he provides. I love that the translation of that word, Jireh, that, that translates as provider, literally it means God sees, he perceives. He is a God who notices things. He's got it covered. The colloquial translation of that word in the time would have been in effect the same as we would say, um, God will see to it. It's like, it isn't that he hasn't noticed. It isn't that he's forgotten you. It isn't that you're so aware of this big problem and God is blissfully ignorant. No, no, he's got it and God will see to it. And that's what Abraham has learned through his story. That's the name that he gives to God coming out of this story. And there's another uh, piece of writing in the New Testament that talks about what Abraham does in Hebrews 11. And it it talks more about this. It says, It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Abraham had received God's promises and he was ready to sacrifice his only son. Even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. And it it tells us another piece of interesting information. It says, Abraham reasoned that even if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. Abraham has realized that God is beyond our human knowledge. Even if he has to bring this kid back from the dead in order to fulfill his promise, God can do that. God will see to it. God has got this covered. So he goes along with God. That word that's translated here as faith is, is more accurate, accurately translated as, as a sense of trust. And it's a trust. It's not blind faith. Faith is, is the trust that we have because we have gained experience of God and we know what he's like. We know the essence of his character. So we know that we can trust him. And we see this in Abraham's story in Genesis 22 when he says to the servants, we're off to do the sacrifice because there's this key phrase at the end of Genesis 22 verses 4 to 5 because he says to the servants, we will come back. So we see that Abraham, he has no idea how God is going to pull this off, but he knows God is going to pull this off. He doesn't know how, but he knows that somehow it's going to happen and that's the key. So the second why of this story is why did God do this then? Why doesn't God just do it the obvious way? Because we would all like it so much better if he just fixed things straight away and we didn't have these moments of dissonance. Why does God ask this of Abraham? And that is the big challenge. And to understand that, we have to remember God's big story. You know, we started off this series thinking about the God of creation, the all-powerful, amazing God who brings light and life and love and good things and order to a world that starts out as chaos. That's what the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of Genesis teaches us. But but the whole of the Old Testament is a tragedy. It's a story of how human beings who are created as moral agents, we make choices. And the problem is we make bad choices all the time and we, we skew away from God's original blueprint for us, for this life, for this world, for everything that God has designed so beautifully. And, and chaos returns. 
The, the creation story is about God bringing order out of chaos, and it returns. We, we see that in the flood story with Noah. You know, we, the, the story of Noah and the flood and all the animals in the ark. I'm not going to tell the whole story, but you'll know it even if it was just from back at school. We, we know the rain came down from the sky, but if you read the Genesis account, literally the waters bubble up from within the earth within the deep, and it, the word there that's used for the deep, it's the same word that's used right at the beginning of Genesis when God takes the deep and he separates it to make land and sea, and he brings this order in the Noah story. Because of the decisions that humans have made, that chaos literally bubbles back up through us. And this is the story we see again and again through the Old Testament, that when God isn't present, when people turn away from God, chaos comes back. And God has this plan. He so longs to bring his goodness and order back that his plan is to create one race of people who he will teach and he will do relationship with and he will live with. And, and, and there, there will be this space where God's original plan, his desire, the love that he has for people can really be lived out. And he's going to do this through Abraham. That's what all the promises about being a father of nations are about. Abraham is the origin of the Jewish people. And so you see right at the beginning of Genesis 22, it says this, God decided to test Abraham. That Hebrew word literally means he's trying him out. It's kind of like, is there any chance this could work? Can you get people, can you teach them to hold this well enough, to make good decisions, to have the right priorities? Can you find someone who will choose to follow God even when it means giving up the thing that's most precious? That's what this is about. And the key to this story is not that God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac because he never asks that of him in the end. I mean, Abraham doesn't know that, but he doesn't actually ask that. The key is that Abraham is willing. You see this in um, Genesis 22, verse 12, when the angel says, I know now that you truly obey God because you were willing to offer him your only son. You, you were willing to walk into that. And what Abraham was willing to do in this moment, it says in this um, translation, he was willing to offer his son. Actually, literally the language there, it, it's, a, it's a double negative. He didn't do something else. He didn't withhold. He didn't hold back. He didn't keep control. What Abraham has been willing to do there is the thing that is probably hardest for most of us as human beings, certainly something I'm not very good at. He's, he's let go. He's given control to God. And in doing that, he creates something really significant. He creates possibility. He creates a space in his story where God the provider can do something amazing. And that's the key of this story. Abraham, remember, didn't know how God was going to do this. He just knew he was going to do it somehow. And this is the challenge to all of us this morning. How do you create possibility in your story? With all the things that you thought of right at the beginning of this, when I asked you about what is your story, where you don't know how God is going to pull this off, where it feels like it's going badly wrong, how do you create possibility? Because our instinct is to want to fix it ourselves, just like Abraham did when he was waiting so long for a child. But actually what God calls us to do is let go control, step into mystery, open up a space where God can act. And then amazing things can happen. But in order to do that, we have to hold that dissonance well. We have to learn to trust God. And we have to do the thing that in human terms is hardest. 
But the reason we have to do that is the best possible reason in the world, because this is a story at the beginning of the Old Testament about God starting with this nation of people. But of course, that wasn't God's only plan. And the Old Testament carries on in the tragedy that even that nation of people keep getting it wrong. But God has another plan. He has another story with another son, another father who is asked to sacrifice his son. And it is, of course, God himself called to sacrifice his only son, Jesus, who is God himself in a human body. You see right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew, when he writes that gospel, is so keen that we know that Jesus is directly related to Abraham, who was the father of Isaac, because he wants you to know these stories are linked. That right at the beginning, before he tried setting up a nation of people through Abraham, he had a plan that later on another father would go through with it and sacrifice another son. And through that would come the ultimate possibility for all of us. This is John 3.16 from the message, talking about what Jesus did. He said, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why. So that by believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. So I asked you at the beginning, what, what's your story today? This is God's story over you. He did give up his son for you to create the ultimate possibility in your life. His longing, his dream for every single one of us and for the world out there is one of whole and lasting life. But what we have to do is sometimes the hardest thing in the world. We have to let go our own control and create possibilities, step into mystery and make a space where God can do something. I wonder what that means for each and every one of us this morning.